Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is David Shields, whose latest book is Other People, Takes and Mistakes. This, I believe, is the 20th book written or co-written by David Shields based upon the list in the front of the book I actually counted. I interviewed you four years ago about how literature saved my life, and somewhere buried in my closet is an old copy of Dead Languages that I was not able to find. Started as a fiction writer, but has lately been moving into the realm of nonfiction, though from what I can tell, the difference between fiction and nonfiction for David Shields is kind of a gray area, which we'll go into as we talk about other people, takes, and mistakes. Is this a collection of essays or essays written for the book or both? What is other people, takes, and mistakes? Right. Thanks, Richard. I think that's you know a nicely leading or rhetorical question that Obviously, it's all of those things. You know, the answer past is always through, that basically, of course, it's works of fiction and nonfiction. It's a collection of essays. And I hope not just a a memoir, but to me, it's really a sustained meditation on a particular theme. Almost all the essays here in this book, all 73 of them, all 370 pages of them, have appeared in some form, in some publication, before. I don't think I wrote any essays entirely for this book, but in rethinking these essays, reconceptualizing them, rethematizing them, and reorganizing and rewriting them, I substantially remade them into pieces of a larger jigsaw puzzle about a particular idea which obsesses me, namely, can one person understand another person? you know, that we've met a a few times and we've talked. Are we just seeing phantoms of each other, shadows of each other, or are we actually communicating? Obviously, the answer there is not black or white either. But as you know, I grew up with a horrendous stutter as a kid in the Bay Area. It was all the Bay Area's fault. And I've been obsessed with communication and miscommunication, human understanding and misunderstanding for the last almost 40 years of my writing life. And and this is a book very much about that particular theme. And when you walk away from it on the other side, did you get any new insights in that rewrite that you hadn't had before? What did I learn? I'm not sure there was a shattering revelation in which I understood, oh my God, human beings can understand each other completely, or no, human beings are lost in the shadows, and I'm jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge tomorrow. But rather, I came to understand in a visceral way I hadn't understood before how interesting the space is between human beings and how, you might say, erotic that space is. Person A 
looks at person B and tries to understand person B, and person B tries to understand person A. And to a certain degree, they're ships passing in the night, but both of them can feel the whoosh of each other passing, the little vibration of the ship's rudders, to continue this overextended metaphor. And it's in that space, in that sort of friction, that frisson, that we feel some shudder. I quote the writer Hilton Alls at one point. He's a drama critic and essayist, and he says something like, what else are we going to do? We're all phantoms. We're all shadows. And all we can do is try to understand those shadows. So anyway, I think the book is very much about the space between people and trying to, in the very attempt to understand each other, fail, but in that space vibrating, we actually learn something. It sounds as if, since the book begins talking about your parents, that as you were going through the various essays, that that's the place to start with your family. Do you understand them? Particularly with your father, who outlived your mother by several years. My dad was born in 1910 in Brooklyn. My mom was born in 1925 in Steubenville, Ohio. They both met in Los Angeles. Post-war, my dad came back from the war, changed his name, alas, from Shilgrout to Shields. My mother and father were sort of on the fringes of sort of blacklist in Hollywood. They knew all the sort of pinkos in Hollywood, and they were part of sort of Jewish left political, film, journalism world. My dad died at a very old age. He, he lived to almost 99. And I've written a book about him called The Thing About Life is That One Day You'll Be Dead. And earlier books of mine are very much haunted by my mother, an early book called Dead Languages and another book called Handbook for Drowning. But anyway, do I understand my mother and father? The father is an important figure in the book. He had quite severe manic depression, or what we call bipolar disease now, I came to understand how much my frenzy and mania come from him, how much my interest in comedy, how much my interest in subverting the dominant paradigm, you know, how much my interest in, um, I don't know if you can swear on this show, a friend of mine, Richard Nass, says the business of literature is to blow sh up. I really love that. And I feel like that's something that my dad was always teaching me. He also taught me a huge love of the human body. He was a really good tennis player, and I'm now a 60-year-old guy with a crummy back, and I walk and swim. But do I understand my father? Only very partially. But I can understand him in this. He had this wonderful tennis stroke he did. If he was running toward the net and couldn't quite reach the ball with his right hand, he would slide the tennis racket into his left hand and tap the ball over the net with his left hand. And on a bodily level, I learned to do that. I don't know if it's DNA or, or watching him, but that shot is part of my sort of corporeal repertory. And I think like that's profound human understanding. I don't know if I can ever understand a man who's now dead, who was bipolar, who I sort of understood and, and sort of loved and sort of didn't understand and sort of recoiled from. But in that tiny tennis gesture, I've incorporated my father. 
There are sections in the book, long sections of him talking or writing. Were those him or were those David Shields writing him? The opening of the book is called something like Complet 101 Letters from My Father, in which the father writes to his son about 25 postcards in which the son, sort of me, is in college and graduate school, and the father's trying to teach the, the son how to write more realistically, and in a way from a stronger sort of Jewish secular tradition. And I don't think it's a coincidence the book starts with that. The book ends with me quoting bad reviews that books of mine have gotten. And I think there's a kind of funny way in which the opening in which the father is criticizing the son and at the end in which the paternal critics are criticizing me as an adult author, those echo off of each other. And I think if the book works, the reader makes those sorts of connections. But on another level, of course, we're never really escaping David Shields because we don't know whether these are real critics. We don't know whether this is really your father speaking. So on some level, what we're getting is somewhere in that gray area between fiction and nonfiction, understanding that in some sense, the only real nonfiction is direct quote. Sure. I mean, even the quotations, as we all know, I mean, you probably have done some journalism in the past. I forget some of, of your background, if you've done any straight ahead journalism. Yeah, I, I certainly have done plenty of journalism, I would even question that. Just think of how in the New York Times, they'll quote someone and they'll clean up that person's language hugely. So everyone who's quoted in the Times, for instance, tends to sound like a part of the Times. To me, the point is nonfiction has always been a contested territory. A friend of mine uses the term non-nonfiction, that there's no such thing as capital T truth. You know, post-Trump, there's a rush among journalists to try to say, we here at, you know, NPR, the New York Times, or whatever, that we are presenting unvarnished facts. And of course, I'm sympathetic to an all-out critique on the orange man, but the idea that somehow journalism is printing 24-7 Truth is crazy. A founding document, as I like to say, of Western civilization is Thucydides' History of the Peloponnesian War. In that book, Thucydides makes up the general speeches. Here it is, a founding document of Western history, and it's making up the general speeches. George Orwell made up many details of his essay, Such, Such Were the Joys. Having said all that, though, Richard, I don't think of this book as hugely worrying the fiction, nonfiction access as previous books of mine have done. Say, Reality Hunger, Enough About You, How Literature Saved My Life. To me, this book is published as a work of nonfiction, of essays. And some of the pieces here had originally appeared as fiction, and I, I revised them toward nonfiction. And some of the pieces clearly walk a boundary-blurring line between fiction and nonfiction. But to me, this book is not wildly interested in that yawning gap. Is it true? Is David making it up? Is he not making it up? To me, it's meant to be, I hope, a seriously emotional, philosophical, and 
an intellectual investigation of human knowing. Like, for instance, there's a very long essay on Bill Murray, say. I really like some of the long essays in the book. The one on David Milch, a former teacher who became a television writer and producer. The oh, I like that one, yeah. Thing. And, you know, and that basically those essays, which I think anchor the book, Cosell, Milch, Balaban, Barclay, Cobain, etc., in which I'm trying to understand another human presence. I tend to lead with the idea of Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. The perceiver by his very presence alters what's perceived. Let's say I was to write an essay on Richard Walensky. I wouldn't attempt to know you completely. I've just met you a couple times. I'd foreground my own very partial knowledge, but I'd still try to get to something true about you as filtered through my perception. And that in that filter is a kind of useful truth. I think if we all went around and acknowledged our very strong filter, as this book does, I think that we'd be in a saner world as opposed to somebody, you know, I mean, just sort of comical to take a very easy target, Trump, who thinks of himself as bad and sick, calling Obama a bad and sick man. I mean, the mere effect of that is so obvious one hardly has to point it out. I'm hugely interested in people who can admit their own flawedness. And if there's anything that this book does is acknowledge my own misperceptions and misdeeds and try to get the reader to understand their own flawedness. One issue that comes up as I listen to you speak is that we seem to be in a society where we're all constantly being asked judgments. Well, if I only know, say, David Shields 50% and the other 50% is whatever I'm feeding on that 50%, I can't really make a judgment. I can't say good or bad. The best I can say for the Milch essay is, oh, cool, I liked it. Is it good? Is it bad? Well, who knows? And what do I really know about you? How can I make that judgment when we are being asked on a daily basis to judge everything? I would say an hourly basis or a minute-by-minute basis. It's a book I've written in a way over a 35-year writing career since, you know, graduating from graduate school in 1980. I've been writing these essays on and off as parts of other books, and I finally gathered them into this sustained book. The Milch thing is an example where there have been a lot of profiles of Milch. He's a relatively well-known television producer of such shows as Hill Street Blues, NYPD Blue, and Deadwood. And he's sort of a bit of a notorious figure in Hollywood who's, uh, you know, he was a professor at Yale, and he's had a lot of gambling issues and drug addiction, heroin, alcohol, I believe. He's not the well-oiled machine that a lot of Hollywood types are, and yet he's a very smart guy. I happened to take a summer semester class with him in New Haven, my goodness, 30-plus years ago. And he was a fascinating individual. He, he kind of cast a long shadow. He would do stuff like John Cheever would come to class, and Milch would pick on me, and he would say, Mr. Shields, would you say that Farragut, the main character in Cheever's novel, Falconer, is pussy-whipped. 
you know, and like here I am, this 20-year-old kid, you know, in class having to answer before John Cheever if his main character is indeed Pussy Whip. Milch was trying to get people on edge. And in this essay, I don't try to have the last word on Milch. I try to show how Milch and I interacted. And I, re I read a recent review of the book, and the guy happened to like the book, and the reviewer happened to know Milch because the reviewer writes for a Buffalo newspaper, and Milch grew up in Buffalo, New York. And the reviewer generously said something like, in Shields' refusal to get Milch exactly right, or to have the last word on Milch, he tells us more about Milch than any number of fawning magazine profiles. You know, I'm confused about Milch. He and I are still kind of slightly in touch. He interests me. In some ways, he sort of bores me. But he's a person who had a huge influence on my writing life. I suppose the point I'm trying to make here in us trying to understand each other is to dodge or move away from absolute knowing, to pretend that we know who Obama is or Bill Murray or even Richard Walensky or David Shields, but to dwell in the ambiguity of not knowing, understand that your knowledge is always partial, to try to appreciate the ways in which, in the back and forth of confusion between the two of you, there might be some brief human comprehension, that we all live through each other in very powerful ways. How would that work with fictional characters? Same thing. I mean, they're fictional. Right. But then again, so is my perception of you. Totally. Well, that goes to the core of what interests me so much about nonfiction. As you mentioned, Richard, you know, I began as a fiction writer. I wrote three novels. And trying to write my fourth novel, I got a little tired of the novelistic architecture. And so I became, as I have been over the last 20 years, quite a practitioner and proponent of the excitements of nonfiction. However, I am no way interested in straightforward nonfiction. I'm not interested in, to be honest, in straight-ahead journalism. I'm not very interested in straight-ahead scholarship. And I'm not terribly interested in straight-ahead memoir. What I am interested in, I think this book, I hope, is a good example, I am hugely interested in the frame of nonfiction as a trampoline off which to bounce into the most serious epistemological questions, namely, what's real? What's knowledge? What's memory? What's truth? What's a self? How much can a self know about another self? To me, there's something really exciting about the pseudo-factual space of nonfiction that puts a lot of very useful pressure on that question. I've been very influenced by a lot of self-reflexive documentary filmmakers, a lot of anthropological autobiographers, and a lot of stand-up comedians. For instance, if we're watching Amy Schumer or Chris Rock, or we're reading George W.S. Tro or Renata Adler, what are we watching? To me, the moment a work declares itself fiction, maybe it's just me, but the air leaks out of the balloon a bit. But when a work is trying and failing to be a true documentary or trying to be 
a straight-ahead autobiography. To me, perhaps, again, because I grew up in a very journalistic household full of nonfiction and politics, when stuff is trying hard to be true, but you can see the ribs of the thing show, that gets really interesting to me. It seems to me that it kind of goes back to the fact that your parents were journalists and that you were able to see the ribs at a very early age. That's a wonderful way to say it. I grew up in a family down the peninsula, 20 minutes down the road from here, and our family was hugely involved in all things political, all things journalistic, all things left, heavily involved in civil rights and desegregation causes. In some sense, all those things are still very much my passions. I'm making a documentary movie about Oakland's own Marshawn Lynch right now, um, making a movie with some other people about African Muslims a few weeks before the Paris bombings. So I'm hugely interested in the issues that my parents were. But as you say, I saw the ribs really early. I saw how people who might have a lot of moral and political righteousness might have trouble getting along with each other. And I saw the little fibs that entered into supposedly true journalism. For instance, my mother was, for a long time, the West Coast correspondence in Los Angeles and San Francisco for The Nation magazine. And I've read a lot of her correspondence with the editor-in-chief, Carrie McWilliams, who is a distinguished California historian and journalist. And the ways in which McWilliams and my mother would talk about what could and couldn't be in the nation were fascinating to me. There it was, so that I became a huge fan of very early David Letterman. I mean, he became just one more boring talk show host. But early on, I loved the way that Letterman showed the theatrical ribs. You know, the show could hardly exist, but for Letterman tripping over the cameraman's cords, you know, he was showing you the ribs of the show. So anyway, I think I like stuff that shows you the sausage making. Don't pretend that you're delivering us delicious sausage, or better yet, deliver us delicious sausage and then also show us the making of it. That seems to me really beautiful. Well, I'm not going to get into whether you can or can't eat a meta sausage. <laughs> <laughs> also, I can't stand sausage. I don't know. I just don't like sausages. Then let me take that into a current thing that we're all dealing with, which is the relationship of real and fake news and even down to alternative facts. If what you're suggesting, which I mean, we all go for to some degree, is the importance of subjectivity. But we're also living in a world with other people. Totally. I do know what you mean. This book is either coming out at exactly the right time or exactly the wrong time because in some ways people now want to double down on capital T truth post-Trump. You know, when we had a kind of blitheringly sane, almost boringly sane president in Obama who actually needed an anger translator— now we have someone who's his own anger translator. And in a way, a lot of what I've been preaching, and again in books like Reality Hunger or embodying in a book like Other People Takes and Mistakes, 
in a way, one could misunderstand these books as, in a way, a blueprint for Trumpism, because I'm hugely saying there are always alternative views. And if you put that in Kelly and, and Conway's mouth, that might turn out as alternative facts. Nobody has absolute purchase on truth. Of course, I'd back away from that and say, first of all, they're very different realms, the realm of political discourse and the realm of art. And second of all, the thing I always seem to me to foreground is to always say that we're all bozos on this bus. That is to say, a lot of the Trump, Conway, Bannon, Miller program is to pretend they have a disinformation campaign. It's not alternative facts. It's just plain old authoritarian rule. I mean, it goes back millennia. And there's a pretense that only they can control things. For instance, you know, you can see origins in Trump's act in, you know, Russian performance art from whom Putin learned. You can see it in people like Sam Kinison. You can see it in people like Steve Martin's early act. You can see it all over the place. But what artists do, they may start in their own narcissism, but then they enter their own befuddlement. Whereas Trump, I think, starts with his own narcissism and ends in his own narcissism, and it's a sort of one-way funhouse mirror. I'm trying to think of an example of an essay here that's a good example of that. The Bill Murray. Yeah, the Murray is an essay. We seem to come back to him. And Murray is an interesting figure who, I mean, happens to have, I don't know if he still has, but he has, has had Republican views. And during the Romney-Obama campaign, he came out pretty clearly and strongly for Romney in 2012, which was, you know, kind of interesting. I've written a long 30-page essay here that's, to a certain degree, an ode to Murray. It also buys a lot of distance from him as well. But I think that is a, a good example of it that I finally get past myself in, in that essay. I try and show how Murray and I have what I call the same issues, that we're both kind of melancholy, we're both obsessed with language, we're both hugely self-conscious. And Murray has taken those and made a kind of, of winning comic shtick. Whereas I think of my work as, you know, sometimes dry and funny, but I'm not an overt comedian. The essay is, I hope, a sustained and patient and rewarding meditation on how I live through Murray, how Murray, in my imagination, lives through me. And I hope the reader can find himself or herself in the space between Murray and me. The point is, in that essay... I get way beyond myself into, I think, a quite empathetic understanding of Murray. It's a terribly self-conscious piece, but I dare anyone to show me a better essay on Murray. I mean, I've thought about Murray way too long and way too far. I mean, I think it finally gets to something very deep about Murray and, I would dare say, the American character, even though it's heavily shadowed by my own self-consciousness. Well, he's someone who started in one place. SNL or whatever. In those days, the early Murray was this person who was pretty nasty. There's a kind of a, a frat boy, kind of a um, a frat boy with a wicked smile, kind of thing. Right. There's there's a line where it's in um, the bowling movie where he 
He looks at oh a woman. Oh, my God. That's an amazing moment. I don't know if you want me to describe it or if you want to. Well, go ahead. You know, where it's a line that Murray improvised on set. He plays, I believe, Woody Harrelson's kind of nasty mentor. And according to Murray, he wanted to figure out something in the scene that showed that he was a really bad guy. So apparently, improvisationally, as Murray often is, he walks up to two women seated in a cafeteria and says, hi. And the less attractive one says, hi. And Murray says, not you, her. That's an amazingly brutal and nasty thing that basically I'm acknowledging the existence of someone because she happens to be more attractive to me, whereas you, who aren't as attractive, don't exist. I mean, that's pretty powerful. And in a way, it's not stuff you're supposed to say or do, but it breaks through a terribly correct wall. And I think, you know, I mean, that's powerful acting. Like on some level, you could say it's just really nasty. On the other hand, you could say that's art. You know, that's what art tries to do. Yeah, but where it gets disturbing is that you can see Donald Trump doing that today. That's a great point. That's a wonderful connection. And there's where I agree with you. If the whole point was that we're supposed to admire him because he is so nasty to women and as Trump sort of famously does, that incredible interview between Trump and Stern, Howard Stern, where Stern asks him, do you respect women? And you can just hear Trump calculating what to say, what builds Trump brand better to say he he respects women or not. And he sort of doubles down on, on non, says he thinks about it. And he says, no, I don't. There's more mileage to be gained from being an asshole than from being a nice boy, a good person. He's building the Trump brand of being a nasty person, whereas in Murray, that you're laughing at him, not with him. And that is all the difference in the world. And it's obvious from context that Murray himself knew that he was stepping over the line because his character was supposed to step exactly. over the line. I mean, he's a remarkably self-conscious and reflective and thoughtful actor, you know, who has aspirations toward writing. Murray, you know, is sort of the slacker's intellectual or something like that. You know, he's interested in in these things. But I think we've nicely got around in our circuitous way to the difference, I hope, between, I hope, my art and, say, Trump's political <laughs> manipulations. I mean, that's a beautiful moment. Murray says something nasty, and we read through it to human failing. Trump says something nasty, and the 40% dig it as revenge upon the body politic. Well, that's all of the difference in the world. And I think Trump, of course, sort of famously has zero self-knowledge. And I think all art, of course, is about deepening self-knowledge in the reader and the writer. Well, what I get from the administration and what's going on now is that the idea of knowledge, self or otherwise, is being downplayed, trying to disengage us with learning. It's a good point. I agree with you. I mean, across the board, environment, science, education, 
health. I mean, in a way, you could see the Trump people are sort of science fiction writers. They're just making up nonsense by the day. You know, this is not a political show per se, and the book is not overtly political. Like you could think, other people takes and mistakes. One could see that as the headline for every day's news. I do think it's a powerful thing. Trump sees other people, and again, this is not exactly a newsflash. He finds other people who aren't exactly like him or who don't serve his direct needs, financial or sexual. He finds them really repellent by their being other. Whereas the key thing, I think, is to be moved by and even erotically moved by, sort of philosophically erotically moved by people's baffling otherness and difference. So that in this book, say, I try to understand, let's say, Charles Barkley, and I don't know if Barkley has read the piece or if he liked the piece, and I don't pretend to exactly understand Charles Barkley, but I try hard, and I'm trying not to just say, I'm going to build a wall because you're a person of brown skin, so you're going to stay in Mexico. I'm going to say, okay, I'm a really different person from Charles Barkley. I'm going to acknowledge all of my prejudices, all of my limits, all of my delusions, but now watch me try to extend human understanding towards someone who's really different from me. I probably don't get him exactly right. I'm getting him according to my own lights. But I would bet Barclay would recognize himself or Murray would recognize himself. Or more importantly, I think, the reader would recognize themselves. You know, in like, yeah, maybe I'm, I'm more like Shields or more like Murray or... Anyway, the whole point is that as you read these pieces, not that you find me particularly fascinating because I haven't particularly lived an amazingly dramatic life, but you find in your own life an ability to what? Allow other people to live through you and you to live through other people. For instance, I was, was recently at a book festival and the woman who was driving me around to the various events had been reading the book. And in this rather kind of sweet way, she said, reading the book made her want to insist that her own husband speak to her more, that they're basically just ships in the night. They just take care of practical things together. They're both physicians. And that basically, she said, they don't really try to connect. And that, you know, in this very moving way, at the end of my stay at, at this book festival, she said, the book makes me want to break through those walls between herself and her physician husband. I mean, this book is not self-help, and it's not going to <laughs> save your marriage. But it's about how cool it is to talk to someone else and try to think about someone else and try to understand someone else and fail, but as Beckett says, fail better. By the same token... The actor or even the fiction writer in creating a character and in embodying the character on some level is attempting to do that as well. How so? I'm not sure I'm following what okay, you mean, well, Richard. Okay, well, I mean, if, you're, if I'm trying to understand you, right? In a work of fiction or just, just, just right generally, here? Just generally. Right. Okay. I'm trying to understand you. Right. Okay, now, 
obviously whatever overlays of me are there, I'm going to try to acknowledge because that'll get to the better you, let's say. But an actor, let's say, in taking character. Right. Like playing Hamlet or whatever. Whatever is going to bring that, that character in and attempt to understand that character, again, with the same overlays. Of course. And so they're doing the same thing. The writer of fiction, how many writers of fiction have I spoken to? This is a rhetorical Probably question. A lot of hundreds, them. Yeah. A lot of them, and I ask them the same question. You know, you say the character did this. Well, what the heck do you mean by that? The, I know. That's always... But the, I've the, never bought that. I hate when fiction writers... This is why I stopped being a fiction writer. They say this every time, and it drives me nuts. I didn't mean to cut you off, Richard. Finish your question. But this is this is just red meat to me. But but go ahead. And well, when they, when they say that, I'm kind of like you know all all the time looking them, and I'm fascinated by but the different. What do answers. they say though? They well, they pretend the fic- They pretend the character has a kind of will of well, of, it, uh, of his own. Well, but then then you press them further, and and you always get the same answer. Well, the answer is, I was just writing, and it came from my subconscious right. or whatever. But then they're going with it, and some of them are a little more aware. Will say, well. The character walks into a room, and since I know the character, I know the character's going to turn to the right to the, that rather than to the left. And if I want to say, okay, the character is turning to the right because the character's doing it on some deeper level, it's simply because I know that the character has to turn to the right, not to the left. Right. And there, I mean, it's just an attempt to mystify and magicalize the process. You know, they're conscious beings. I've always loved th- this line And when Johnny Carson was at, he was, for younger listeners, he was a talk show host. He was sort of the <laughs> talk show host. I don't know if, you're, if your listeners tend to be our age. Or, no, they tend to be older than us. Oh, yeah. so everybody who's, who's listening, but for maybe people under, under 30. Anyway, he was sort of the reigning talk show host host king, whatever, king host uh, of the sort of 60s and 70s and 80s. But anyway, he was once asked, what's the difference between you and Robert Redford? And he said, I thought this was such a beautiful line. He goes, I'm playing me, which is so beautiful to me. That Redford, of course, is playing, say, Butch Cassidy or Sundance Kid, but he's Sundance. Play, he's playing whatever. the yeah. Sundance Kid, or I can't think right now very many, well, you know, like, Three Days of the Condor, you know, All the President's Men or something. So he's playing a character, but in a way, because he is such an iconic actor, to me he was always playing Robert Redford in many ways, whereas to me much better actors enter the realm of the actual character. But anyway, the idea that Carson knew that he was playing himself, apparently off screen, Johnny Carson was a rather morose and rather sad little man, you know, like he, you know, went through like five or six wives and was very um, parsimonious and, you know, chain smoker and, you know, just kind of a gloomy guy. And I think, I don't know, he wasn't the greatest guy, but on screen, he did have a rather alchemical process. He had a magnetic, I mean, I wasn't a huge Johnny Carson fan, but he owned that camera. He played himself. And I guess that for me, that performance interests me more. Why? I don't know. You'd have to go deep into my subconscious or or my psyche. But part of it 
was growing. I, I may have told you this story before, Richard, where I, I grew up in the Bay Area. I listened on Saturday mornings. I think it was KSFO, 8 a.m. until 12 noon. They would have stand-up comedy hour every Saturday. And as a kid, I had a horrible stutter and loved listening to these great comics on KSFO, you know, Nichols and May, Woody Allen, Richard Pryor, Bob Newhart, those kind of classic comedians of the 60s and 70s. And I just love these people basically playing themselves, speaking in their own voice, transforming agony into art. Like that really moved me. That to me is still the model of art. Different strokes for different folks. Many people, most people, love fiction. They're on an airplane. They're reading a Michael Chabon novel. They're not reading my book, probably. But I personally am bored with the fictional apparatus. I love the essayistic mode. I love the intimacy between the reader and writer. I love the idea that we are building a bridge across the abyss of human loneliness, that if you go on this particular psychological and philosophical journey with me, it's a tremendously intimate conversation between writer and reader, whereas I find, to be honest, the huge majority of most novels to be a kind of glorified entertainment. They might touch on certain sorts of themes, but essentially they are an escape from life. Samuel Johnson said, a book can either allow us to escape existence or teach us how to endure existence. And I love books that teach us how to endure existence. And if everyone out there in Radio Land reads this book, I will teach them to do nothing less than how to endure existence. It's fascinating listening to you talk and compare it to four years ago where you were still okay with fiction except for the big baggy novel. One of those phrases that has stayed in my brain so hard that sometimes when I'm reading a book for an interview, I'm going, Big baggy novel. Oh, my God. This is a David Shields big baggy novel. And when I read Paul Auster's big baggy novel, I'm thinking, oh, Lord. Don't bring David Shields in here. <laughs> I mean, I, that's fun. I mean, Auster's an interesting example because, you know, I'd hear him on NPR sometimes when he was the curator of, of that series on NPR about people's stories and stuff. And he's a terribly smart guy. And I think he's really smart. But his fiction just doesn't interest me because, to me, when he writes, he tries to write with a capital L literature. It's like, okay, I'm writing now. Capital W, capital F for fiction, capital L for literature. It feels so much like a man straining to lift, you know, a 200-pound barbell over his head. And I can feel the effort in every sentence. And that's just not, to me, what, what literature ought and can and does feel like in 2017, we're surrounded by this hyper-digitized culture, by the web, by social media. And to write literature as if it's 1947 is madness. And so many of the writers who I think are, as I've gone on, you know, painfully overvalued, overread, are writers who are writing in sort of a pre-21st century way. To me, Auster is an example of that. Would you push back? Do you like Auster quite a bit? I would have pushed, might have pushed back until the most recent book. You know, I could see what he's trying to do in that book. What's it called? Four, three, two, one. Four, three. That's a cool title. It's a great title. And why is it called that? It's called that because. Was it like April 3rd, 21 or something? No, no, no. He starts with a birth of a character. 
and then something different happens externally. In one case, his father dies. In one case, his family gets rich. In one case, his family gets poor. In one case, his family stays middle class. So basically, and, sort of four versions of the same life. I would just tell him that we don't have the time. I don't have time to get to page 706. Like, well, 850, but I mean, whatever. Who reads and writes such things? I don't get it. I just know that stuff is dead. But that's just me. I mean, Paul Oster probably doesn't find my stuff of interest. Well, you know, on the, the other hand, you know, when you're embedded in the book. It's and, quite engaging. Oh, you're totally embedded really? in the book. Oh, oh yeah, great. absolutely. Well, that's absolutely. great. Absolutely. You're, you're, you're not here. You are there wow. in the book. Well, that's so. quite a big thing. For some reason, I can sometimes watch serial TV that way, sort of, of good serial TV. But I think of it as essentially a social experience, a sort of downshifting, something to do with my wife, and get, you know, good or even very good art, but it's finally not, to me, life-changing. Whereas I want books to be the axe that breaks the frozen sea within us, to quote Dr. Kafka, you know. And to me, 800 pages, you know, 850. no thanks. 850. Yeah. 850. <laughs> no David Shields, this has come out. What are you working on now? The two documentaries? Also simultaneous with this book is a, a film that came out. I don't know if you saw that one. James Franco, my former student, made a movie of an earlier book of mine called I Think You're Totally Wrong, A Quarrel. I'm showing it at various places around the country, and it'll be out shortly on, on various digital platforms, Amazon, Netflix, iTunes, etc. And I'm working with Franco on the adaptation of my book, Black Planet. He and Keegan-Michael Key and I are adapting that into a film. I'm also I'm working on my own on a documentary about, as I say, Oakland's own Marshawn Lynch. So those are are keeping me very busy. So no books? Oh yeah, I am working on four new books. Three of them are completed and the fourth is, is nearly completed. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.